Would you turn with me in God's Word to Matthew chapter 26? We're going to be reading verses 57 through 68. Now, we're throwing you in the middle of a a very dark hour for Christ in which He has sat at the table with His disciples and He's told them, look, this is what's going to unfold in the next several hours. And you here, one of you among me, is going to betray me beyond that. All of you. Every last one of you will forsake me. And then as he goes to the garden to pray, they can't even stay awake. As he's pouring himself out before God under the immense stress of what he knows is about to unfold concerning his life. And then they come. The man who received 30 pieces of silver for his life and the ones who have been plotting to kill him, and they take hold of him, and sure enough, his disciples go in every direction. And he's dragged, the Son of God, understand, the very Son of God is dragged before a court. And so this morning, we go to that courtroom to watch as things unfold. This trial means everything to the believer. It's in this passage that we see how Christ has been completely and utterly humiliated before man. But we don't see Christ here doing what he could have done, which is defending his innocence to say, I am an innocent man before you. Instead, in this courtroom, he stays completely silent. We'll see this morning that sin is a death penalty that it demands justice and it demands judgment. And we will see that uh, prophecy is unfolding before us in this passage from the Old Testament. And that there is uh, the only evidence in this courtroom to defend Jesus is that very prophecy. The courtroom for us this morning demands uh, a judgment. It demands a decision. It demands a verdict. So later we will ask, what is your judgment? I want you to answer that question this morning. Can I pray? God, we turn to your word this morning to hear from you, to hear your voice speak into our lives, to give us understanding and insight, to build our faith, to unite us to Christ. Would you do that, Father, by the power of your spirit that you have sent to your church for this very reason, to bind us up? to give us ears to hear, eyes that see, give us understanding. Lead us to your Son, Jesus, that we might delight in Him and put our faith in Him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Beginning with verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led Him to Caiaphas, the high priest, to where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat down with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. 
And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by Christ, the Son of God. Oh, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered. He deserves death. Then they spit on his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning we'll consider three points, that sin is a death penalty, prophecy is true, and what is your judgment? First, sin is a death penalty. Verse 57 brings us to Caiaphas' house, a house where at the beginning of chapters 26, this plot began to, to form and take shape. Matthew opens 26 with this, and now we are in that very room where the elders and the chief priests first plotted to plan the death of Jesus. Peter has uh, one who cut off the ear of another man and fled in the night, has now rejoined uh, on the outskirts of the crowd to watch and see what is going to be the end of Christ, his dear friend, the one who he promised he would not abandon. Though it's just after this that he denies him three times. You see, a death penalty has already been decided before the court ever met. And now, all this courtroom needs is some shred of evidence to be able to convict Jesus Christ. The verdict has been decided before Christ was even captured. If you look at verse 59, it says that they were seeking evidence and even a false testimony to convict him. They're not after truth, just witnesses that will give them cause. But their work's not easy. They can't even find people that agree on their stories to convict him. Just two liars, that's all we need. Mark's gospel tells us that no one's stories matched. But finally... There's two. Two that can agree, verse 61, they say, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Deuteronomy 17 says that they need to have two witnesses if they're going to put a man to death. And now they have it. Finally, two can agree on the case. However, there's a problem with their testimony. Verse 62 with the charges laid before Christ, he remained silent. The chief priest, he's, he's angry. I mean, how could Jesus sit here like this? And he says, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And it's silence. He sits there. When death is on the line, would you not seek to defend yourself? I mean, does Christ not understand the danger that he is in in this courtroom? In fact, the testimony that these two men have given is false. 
Christ has every reason to deny what they have said about him. He could say, no, no, that actually, that's not what I said. It's a, a small difference, but it has immense consequences. In the beginning of the book of John, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Do you catch the small nuance there? Because words matter. He didn't say he would destroy the temple. He said you will destroy the temple. So why didn't he correct them? Christ's chief concern here was not that he would be found guiltless in the charges before the court. In fact, he had a very different goal in mind in his his silence. In fact, it's important that they destroy this temple, the body of Christ, as he explains in John, to fulfill prophecy. He was silent, like Isaiah 53 said he would be silent, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. It's here that we clearly see that Christ knows that sin is a death penalty. It's how we see Christ not merely as the shepherd of his people, but one who is willing to die to protect his people. He so associates with us in our sin that the Son of God, the ruler of all the earth, would become like sheep in every respect. Spurgeon says, I can understand how we should be like sheep and he the shepherd, but I should have never have dared to coin the comparison which likens him to sheep, except that the scriptures tell us it is so. Christ doesn't answer because he's not there to defend himself. His silence defends the sheep us who have gone astray because sin is a death penalty. It's ours. It is our death penalty. As Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Christ remains silent before these accusers and these liars, these wicked men, so that he might become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Sin is a death penalty, and that is a penalty Christ is willing to bear for the sake of sinners. These men decided long ago that Christ should die for things that he has said, but it's not simply uh, these men's hatred or the hatred of those Jews that resisted him and killed him that brought us our redemption. In fact, it, it would be decided before the world was ever made that Christ would remain silent. It was God's decision. We often refer to this as the covenant of redemption. That's a promise or a covenant that the Trinity made before the very foundations of the earth for the salvation of man that he might know peace with God. Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us 
in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Amen? This is what is unfolding in this courtroom. It's a plan. It's more ancient than the world. A plan beyond even these men who have plotted for sin is a death penalty that will that he will bear the judgment rather than us. He has emptied himself of his former glory in heaven, subjected himself to this humiliation, to the ropes that they bind him with, to the blows that they have given him for this very purpose. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Pause for a moment and really consider what is unfolding in this courtroom. Christ had every reason and every proof to defend himself, though he lacked the witnesses who have already fled in the night. One man who sits on the outskirts that won't even speak up for him, but instead would deny him. It's actually us. We have no defense. We would have no defense in a courtroom in which we were being judged whether or not we were a sinner. We couldn't withstand the accusation of sin, and we have no defense for it. Nor that, like Christ, like God's word says, it deserves his condemnation and it is death. It's only when we see this innocent Christ, this silent Christ, who is willing to suffer and to die for our transgressions that we are saved from the reality that sin is a death penalty. This is what it looks like, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's here we understand that God being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together by grace you have been saved. This is the way it must be for sin is a death penalty. No, Christ will not speak in his defense, but remain silent in our defense. It is the way of salvation, and it leads us to our second point this morning, that prophecy is true. All that is unfolding is happening according to the word and will of God. Prophecy, which these men in this courtroom know by heart. They have given their lives to the study of the Old Testament scriptures. They know it. They uh, have uh, taught it, and yet, here they stand in their zeal and thump their chest as they ask Jesus these questions. The chief priest, upset, angry, because Christ can't even uh, open his mouth in this courtroom. So in verse 63, I believe he's lost his temper here. He says, I adjure you, that is, I command you. By the living God, tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? 
As if to say, you don't just sit before us, Jesus. Do you not know that God is watching? And he's waiting for your answer? Do you raise your right hand, Jesus, and say, you are the Son of God, the Messiah? That's the real crux of the matter for them. Do you really claim to be the one that the prophets have promised? And were they really ready for the answer that he gave? Verse 64, Jesus says, you have said so. Mark's gospel says he answers, I am. He says that when he's in the garden. He says, I am, and they all fall on the ground in front of him. These same men now hear him say, I am again in their presence. Or John, or Luke's account says, if I tell you, you won't believe. In this matter, Christ does not remain silent and deny who he is. Everything is now in the open. You remember you heard over and over again in his ministry, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Well, Jesus Christ drops the microphone here and says, I am. My time has arrived. There is no denial of it. Calvin points out, for they have not just heard now, but had previously beheld with their eyes miracles, dead coming to life, lame walking, storms calmed, demons cast out. And that would have confirmed his heavenly and divine power and even would have cried aloud that he was indeed the promised Redeemer. How this answer is received by them is indeed prophetic. They are enraged by the answer. Verse 65, the high priest tears his robes, his garments. It's not an act of repentance, but it's anger. A burning hatred of this man. It should have given him more pause that Christ chose to answer this one particular question. Christ knows full well of their intention, that his life is in the balance here, and He doesn't deny that he is the long-awaited, the long-anticipated Messiah. Instead of pause, without hesitation, they respond, this man must die. Of course, even their blindness in this matter is prophecy. Isaiah 42, 20 says, He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Instead, the high priest says, We now have everything that we need to convict this man. Everything that we need to put him to death. So he says, What further witness do we need? That's a great question. I mean, what further witness could be given than having the actual Messiah that you've waited for in your midst? What further evidence could you possibly have? They have the whole of the scriptures detailing the Messiah, the things that will come to pass, and now they have him in in their presence. Prophecy is true. For here's the one of Psalm 40, 
in which he says, Here I am, I have come, it is written of me in the scroll, I desire to do your will, my God. Here is the one of Psalm 78, my people hear my teaching, they listen to the words of my mouth, I will open my mouth with parables, which describes the teaching ministry of Christ and utter hidden things. Here is the one born in Bethlehem as Micah 2 prophesied. Here is the one born of the virgin as Isaiah spoke in chapter 7. Here is the one, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 that would uh, carry the sins of this world being struck, abused. Here is the one of Daniel 9 who will finish transgression, put an end to sin, and atone for iniquity and seal both vision and prophecy. Here is the one of Zechariah 9 spoke of when he said, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He is, is he humble and mounted on a donkey? Did they not just see that several days earlier at the shouts of the hosannas as he rode in? Here is the one of Zechariah 11, who Zechariah says will be sold for 30 pieces of silver. These men counted it out. An amount that they have already passed to the one who would betray him. Here is the one, the Passover lamb of Exodus 12. Here is the one whose blood is spilled in Leviticus 17. Here is the one of Numbers 21 who must be lifted up to take the curse upon himself. Here's the one, I'm almost done, we could go on for hours. (laughs) Here's the one of Psalm 22, who would be forsaken by man and God, or the one who trusts in God for his deliverance because he won't find it in man, or Psalm 22, 16, that will be encompassed by dogs. And before the cross was ever invented, a company of evildoers that will pierce his hands and his feet. Here is the one who the grave cannot contain after they kill him in Psalm 118. Here is the one, last one, of Isaiah 56, 50 verse 6 that says, I gave my back to those who would strike and my cheeks to those who would pull out my beard and I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. So isn't it stunning that even in their rage in striking his face and spitting on him that they fulfill prophecy? I mean, these guys can't catch a break. Even in their anger and their lashing out, they still can't do anything that doesn't fulfill the will of God and the purpose of his son being sent. Other gospels Tell us that they blindfolded Christ and strike him mockingly and say, prophesy who struck you. But it's not Christ who is blind here. Everything is under the hand of the sovereign will of God so that in the end we see that the enemy is absolutely powerless to stop the work of the Messiah. Prophecy is true. Even the prophecy Christ just spoke In verse 64, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What audacity to speak to the judge that way. 
to say to these men who are deciding his face, you will see, you will see my authority. He's directing them to a higher court to which all men will give account, which he will be the judge of. He is, of course, quoting prophecy they knew from Daniel 7. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before them. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations shall serve him. It's even now these wicked men serve the purpose of God to usher in this kingdom that he has been speaking about the whole book of Matthew. Jesus is referring to the end of the story. Revelation 1, 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? Christ is the only faithful witness in the crowd this night, and one day it won't be this kangaroo court, but the court of the living God. The one that Caiaphas actually calls upon. And it will be there that Christ is the judge and all men will be called to give account before him. Prophecy is true. One day, brothers and sisters, we will find ourselves in that court. Pray now. Lord, let my eyes and ears be open to this truth. Christ has openly declared he is the son of the living God. And we must grapple with that now. Not wait. Not wait till we see, well, let's see if he really does come. Then it will be too late. Christ is in this court not because of his sin, but ours. For sin is a death penalty. And Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as the redeemer of sinners. And we must not leave this courtroom this morning, this scene, without answering the question that Caiaphas asks. What is your judgment? Our last point. I say this as as an imperative to you. The first two points are irrefutable indicatives. We are sinners. Not you might be. You are. I am. We're dead in our sin, and the prophecy concerning Christ is true. After hearing Christ's response to the chief priest in verse 66, he says, What is your judgment? We, in the gallery, we are in the gallery, so to speak, the, the, the jury of this court. A decision has been made concerning Christ's identity and his call. They, of course, have decided Christ needs to die. He has to die. In fact, Caiaphas uh, prophesied elsewhere, not knowing he was prophesying and saying, it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. If only he understood the words he prophesied in such a statement. They wanted him to die so that his voice would be silenced. This, whatever this movement you're working on, Christ, would not prevail. It would cease when the teacher, the great teacher, is gone. But Christ's silence in this courtroom is not silence now. It echoes throughout the world to every nation, tribe, and tongue. It is echoing in here as you worship every Sunday. 
His suffering here is the beginning of the violence that he's going to soon face for our sin. But soon his voice will pierce the day and he will say, Tetelestai. It is finished. What is finished? His breath was finished. But his work was finished. He had done what he was sent to accomplish. And the prophecy concerning it was done. It was finished. He finished the redemption he was sent to accomplish. And still his voice goes out now because he's not silenced. He rose from the dead. He lives and he rules and he has power and authority. And he says to you this morning, you sinners who might say, I am too far gone. I am too guilty. If you people only knew the things in my heart. You might look to the left or the right on your row and go, sure, we confess sins together. But those people have no idea. Listen, let his voice ring out. When you say, what is your judgment? This Messiah says, come to me and be saved. Are you weary? Come. Do you have immense burdens? Come and lay them at my feet. It simply cannot be avoided, though. When I say, what is your judgment? It can't be set aside for some later consideration. For as Christ said, you will see the Son of Man coming be seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. It's a set day and you will face it. It's unavoidable. He will come as a thief in the night. And you will either answer this question now in belief. Or when you see his face, you will wail. Because it will be before the judgment seat and it shall be too late. In some sense, we must tear something. For Caiaphas rends his garments, doesn't he? So angry at the thought of the the, the bravado of this man to stand before he, the high priest, and say, I'm the Messiah. But Joel says in chapter 2, don't tear your garments. He says, rend not your garments, but your hearts. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. That is good news for us this morning. A merciful God, who even for these wicked people would have Peter preach after Peter denied him. The fact that he'd have Peter preach. But then he'd have Peter preach to these people and tell them, you crucified the Christ. And they say, what must we do to be saved? And what does he do? He doesn't burn them up like Sodom and Gomorrah. He pours out his spirit upon them and thousands come to faith in Christ. Rend your hearts. Repent of your sins. See here, Christ who remains silent to save sinners who have a death penalty. See here the Christ who has fulfilled and will fulfill all the prophecy has said about him. And judge now that he is the Messiah who loves you. Do you know that this morning? Jesus loves you. And he will save you from your sin. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for this word that you've laid before us. Your son utterly humiliated 
subjected to the wrath of men, subjected to their anger, their hatred. Lord, may it not be so with our own hearts this morning. We were capable of shouting with them, crucify him. But this morning, we give praise that you have so loved this world that you sent your only son, that he accomplished the purpose to which you sent him. Give us faith to understand these things. Belief, even if our belief is so weak this morning, build us up, help our unbelief that we might see Jesus as he has professed to be the Messiah. Believe upon him that we might be saved from all of our sins. Christ be the delight of our heart. Turn us from our sin that we might enjoy the fellowship we have with you now this morning that will extend into eternity and never end, ever. Lord Jesus, we ask, come quickly. Amen.